Hi, everyone, and welcome into Elevate Hers Empower Space, What I Wish I Knew series. This limited series that helps you and other young professionals learn from seasoned professionals all the things they wish they knew when entering the workplace. Hi, and welcome back to the Empower Space podcast by Elevate Her. I'm your host, Rachel Paterno, and today we have Zaida Basora joining us to talk about knowing your worth in the workplace. So Zaida, welcome. Uh, Thank you for having me. Yeah, we're very excited. So you have a unique background and story. Tell us how you became interested and eventually became an architect. Well, I, as far as I can remember, Rachel, I wanted to be an architect. My parents say that I wanted to be an architect from the time that I was four. And I always wonder, you know, how much kids know about any of that at four years old. But, you know, I grew up in Puerto Rico and I know that I've always been, I've always paid attention to the spaces, you know, growing up in, in San Juan in the sixties and seventies, there was no air conditioning, you know, in the homes. And so the experience of being indoor and outdoor was always something that I paid attention to and the color, the use of color, you know, in our culture and, you know, coming from a, a Spanish background and a Spanish colonial city in El San Juan, it was something that I always really was interested in. So I studied architecture in Puerto Rico and I wanted to be a famous architect. Obviously, you know, when you are young, you always want to be someone famous. So I moved to Dallas in 1981 because things were happening in Dallas then. Not sure how many of, of the audience know about the show Dallas that was in the 80s with J.R. Ewing, but it was what we watched in Puerto Rico. Yes. And I moved to Dallas in 81 and there was a construction boom. You know, there was a lot of development. I went to UTA to do my master of architecture, but I was part of the AIAS chapter, the student chapter of the American Institute of Architects. And we got to tour the fountain place when it was under construction. You know, I saw all of those buildings. The, the Meyerson was just, uh, had just been completed. City Hall was a brand new building. The Dallas Museum of Art was, had just opened also. So it was just a good time to be part of that growth of Dallas. So that's sort of how I ended up here and ha- why I stayed. We've had always a, a pretty good economy and Our profession tends to have a little bit more resilience here in the Dallas area. Even though I did move to New York for a couple of years in the, my first downturn that I experienced in uh, 1985-86, but then I, I came right back. It sounds like you have some like real passion for architecture. What's like your favorite project you've done? Well, you know, that's an interesting thing. I was part of the Elliptical Renaissance Hotel. You know, I don't know what the name of it is right now, but that was one of the first buildings that was designed using computers. It was in the early 80s when, I mean, if I have to take you back to the 80s when I started in architecture, obviously there were no personal computers per se. Everything was still done by hand. The first software programs that came allowed, you know, for some new techniques for design and the, that elliptical project, all the marble was specified, you know, based on 
the radiuses and the, you know, the formula that came from the computers. To the extent that when Philip Johnson did a similar office tower in New York, they actually called our office in Dallas, the Dalbrinden office, to learn more about how we had specified that. So it always has kind of a special place because it was one of those, you know, innovative projects back then. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah. So you have experience in both the private and public sectors. You participate in community and professional foundations and boards. Uh, To get where you are now, I imagine you kind of broke a lot of molds, a lot of innovation, like you just mentioned, challenged traditional mindsets, and overcame a lot in an era that was maybe not as supportive for women. So it's a twofold question. How was your experience as a woman in the private and public sectors and the community the same or different? And to follow that up, were any experiences more or less challenging to overcome? And can you elaborate on that for us? All right. Well, that's a a really, you know, as I was thinking about this, you know, I mean, I've been practicing, it'll be 40 years in February. So it's like, there's been all of these, you know, I've had so many experiences. I love that I've really wanted to block. But (laughs) going back to your question, I started in the private sector. And I have to say that as an architect starting in the private sector back in the 80s, it was easier than the public sector, right? I think there was more acceptance, even though when I started in the profession in 1983, there were not that many women. And I remember when I first interviewed, the person that interviewed me says, you know, well, you don't have any experience, what am I going to hire you on? And I said, you hired me on potential, right? And and they kind of laughed and it was kind of a one of, I think that that kind of sense of humor, that type, kind of um, lightheartedness was essential to kind of grow in the profession. You know, I was really young in my, you know, I was 23, 24 when I started working without experience. And I had this attitude that I just wanted to learn. I wanted to learn everything there was to learn. So to a certain extent, I was kind of one of these, you know, little young, relentless woman. And I was Hispanic, you know, on top of that. So I have a little bit of an accent now. I have to say a little bit because my accent was a lot thicker then. I wasn't as fluent in English. So it was harder. And I think the the perception of who I was and, and what I could offer was something that I worked on to change as I was growing professionally there, right? So I spent four years at that firm in the beginning. And I think that I had the opportunity to to show what I could do. I learned, but it was like that by asking, asking, ask, ask questions. Don't just get, you know, say, no, I don't have time for that. Now I'm like, well, let's find the time, right? So I think that my experience in the private sector early on was being young and inexperienced kind of served me to help me grow. I think when I transitioned to the public sector, which, you know, I have five children. I had to take a little bit of time off, you know, because I had my kids kind of pretty close to each other. So I did some freelance work. And when I went back to work, I did in the public sector just so that I didn't have to travel as much and I didn't have to work after hours as much, right? I mean, it was, I think, more manageable. You know, when I first had, I started with twins. And when I first had the twins, I was traveling Every couple of weeks, I would have to travel and be out of town for a week. So I just realized that I really couldn't keep up that pace with children. 
So that's why I had to make the decision to stop working and stay home. And then I have more children, right? So I just decided to to just stay home and do that freelancing because professionally, the whole equation of, of being pregnant and going to job sites and, and trying to grow professionally, just there's a bit of disruption there, right? I think that going back to how you present yourself and, and how people see you in the profession, well, you know, pregnancy is obviously a disruption, not as much for for you as, as a woman, because, you know, I always tell my staff here that are young mothers, I say, you know, your brain doesn't go to mush just because you're pregnant and, and are having children. But I think the perception is that clients and people don't don't see it that way. And and that's something that, you know, going back to, I guess, maybe later in this question and answer thing, you know, it's how do we ourselves start changing that perception? But we, we are not there yet. So when I went to, to back to work, I went to the public sector. And interestingly enough, there was also, I think it was more challenging there because I think in the public sector, traditionally, the executives and the managers and the leaders are more men than male than female, especially in the professional environment, right? We are in architecture, engineering, they're mostly more male-dominated professions still to this day. But back when I started in the mid-90s, we still didn't have computers. The PCs came late 90s. We didn't have cell phones. I had a pager. I had kids. And I started as a senior architect, which wasn't really that challenging. But I think the challenge came with the promotions. Right. I think the part that, that makes it more challenging to overcome is when others see that you're being promoted and others see all the faults about your life and your uh, performance. You know, it's like I remember when I was at the scene in my first promotion to program manager, I think I was the only female architect there. But all of my peers were like, well, but she's never here. And I remember the assistant director said, yes, but she's always the one that responds to all of my requests first. So I think that I had my pager. I had to make friends with all of the administrative assistants so that if I had a call from a school, I could tell them, you've got to cover for me when they come out asking for me. And if you need to page me, I'll stop and I'll call you back and, you know, we'll manage anything that we need to manage. But I mean, I had to go pick up kids drop them off, you know, come back to work. And so in a lot of ways, it's just creating that network of support, you know, to make sure that for the people in the office that mattered, right, I was always responsive and I was always there. I knew what was going on. I was the go-to person. And that's really how I was able to kind of overcome the fact that I had a lot of balls to juggle, you know. And so it taught me really early, like, you know, how to prioritize and also how to be present when I could not really be present physically. But I, you know, that diligence, that responsiveness and that just staying on top of things was always like critical for me to succeed. And the same way, you know, when then I got promoted to be an executive, I remember my the people I went to manage an, a new group of people and all the people would go to the director. I was assistant director and they would go to the director to ask questions. It's like I was there, but they wouldn't recognize that I was now the person in charge of the division. And I remember having to go to the director and say, you know, 
if you're not going to tell people that they have to come through me, then you don't need me here. You know, so pretty much kind of, you've got to be on top of your growth and your opportunities to also set those boundaries or to let people know what your expectations are and manage those expectations with them as well. So it's just been a, a difference, you know, of course, as you grow professionally, then your reputation starts following you. So the challenges in some ways are more, but in some ways are less. And and then, you know, going back to my involvement in community, it's been also a great way to develop a reputation and become a resource in the community that also plays back to work, right? Because if there were any doubts, you know, in the workplace as to, you know, me leading this or that, then that recognition from the outside was always a source of, of support and a source of, you know, that I could rely back on to kind of balance out any challenges, you know, at work and outside. So hopefully that answers some of your questions. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> um, and speaking of growth and promotions, you know, you've been the doer, the manager, the leader. What has been your most challenging role with regards to getting, you know, the respect that you earned? You know, that's an interesting question. It's almost related to the other one. I think that because I was in the public sector, I had to think about how to be looked at as a, as a leader in areas that were not just, you know, your traditional areas of architecture, right? I mean, if you think about in a city, and I was at the city of Dallas, you know, we have public works and, and we, I had that role of like city architect. But before I got there, I had to sort of convince the city manager that I wasn't just an architect, that I could manage, that I could lead. And to get an opportunity to to go to different departments where traditionally there haven't necessarily been architects. So I was purchasing agent and that was that role where I had everybody going to my boss and I had to kind of, you know, redirect that. But then I was appointed chief building official and I think that was probably the most challenging role, right? Because it was a, a more political role and trying to navigate, you know, the role as a female, as an architect inside the city and outside of the city was a challenge, as well as when I was appointed to lead the Green Building Task Force. It was a major task force for adoption of the Green Building Code. You know, how do you facilitate a conversation between a hundred people, between, you know, people from, from the industry, diverse, the interdisciplinary task force? And to facilitate that conversation without necessarily imparting my own opinion or without alienating people because of me being a woman, a Hispanic, you know, all of those things. So it's interesting because I learned how to try to accomplish things through others. And I think that's something that we all need to learn. It's like you're not always going to be the right person to get something done. And I think especially for women... I often hear how women think, well, you know, if a man says something, they listen to him. But if I say it, it's like it's not, you know, like it just goes by. And I'm like, it's okay. I've learned that as long as you can make influence, as long as you can give your idea, even if it's somebody else that carries it out, or even if it's somebody else that gets the praise, you know, it was you who made that 
happen. It was you who kind of planted that seed and created that change and influenced that. And eventually, it all comes back to where people begin realizing that it comes from you, right? But you let the process work and you let the, you know, the people get their chance to chime in. And and it's just really, to me, the bottom line is getting the work done or getting the change effected. So that's been part of, you know, the whole process is learning that there's people that will never want to listen to me because of my action, or there's people that are never going to be happy, you know, with having me in the room. And it's okay. So to go off of that about, you know, maybe people not listening or not liking you for whatever reasons, it seems like you have a lot of self-confidence and that's great. But a lot of our listeners are newer and younger and just starting out. How do you recognize the difference between like, okay, I can handle, you know, this, it's maybe just one person versus like a toxic workplace, toxic environment, like the culture is very toxic, and then muster the courage to either try and change that culture or ultimately decide that maybe you need to move on to a better work environment. Yeah, so toxic, that's a really interesting term, right? Because I it's, it's being used a lot more now than it was used in the 70s or 80s. I think we're just surrounded by toxic environments <laughs> and there were many options, right? I think that's why I say we need to define toxic because it could be one person or if, if you say if it's the culture, that's different. But if it's, I, for the most part, worked in large firms. You know, when I started working in the private sector, I was in, la- in a large firm. When I lived in New York, I was in a large firm. When I went out the city, it's a large firm, right? It's a large organization. And so I never let the toxic be an issue. And that's not easy to, you know, I, I, because I was looking at the overall purpose, right? I, I look at myself as a change agent or as someone that has to work with purpose. And so at the city, the idea that, that the work that we were doing impacts, you know, millions of people and that the buildings that we're building are buildings that are going to be experienced, you know, or enjoyed by a lot of people was a higher call than me trying to figure out or navigate the system. And so I think that a way to deal with the toxic people or a toxic environment is actually developing a network of people that are supportive and that are there, you know, you you learn who are the people that you can go to in the different departments or in the different areas that are supportive of what you're trying to accomplish. And that despite the fact that there may be a lot of known toxic influences, that you can overcome those. And it, it almost becomes a challenge in a good way that despite obstacles, you are able to get some things done because you are able to dismiss that obstacle or get rid of that toxic culture in a way. So there's been some, yeah, I've been in, in a lot of situations, you know, and one of the things that I, that I always tell people is I will never go to a meeting where I don't know what the agenda is, right? I will... I may not be super prepared, but you want to know what's going to be discussed because I have been set up, especially in the, you know, my earlier career, you know, you don't want to be set up. You want to know, you, you want to learn what you're dealing with and you want to set the agenda yourself, right? 
It's like they say, if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. And it's true. It's true at work. It's true at work at every level. You know, when you are starting out, you're all ears. You want to learn and you are, you know, I don't care if they make fun of me because I'm like, yeah, you know, I, I'm famous for saying, you know, if you said we were just talking about you or, you know, they make a joke and I'm like, there's no better subject. Go <laughs> ahead. So, you know, you, I use my own experiences to help me also strengthen my self-esteem, right? You talked about strength and it's something that you learn to develop and to strengthen because a lot of times you're going to have to be your own cheerleader. You're going to have to monitor your career. You're going to have to go ask for the opportunity to be promoted and you're going to have to deal with your peers seeing you now instead of a peer having to deal with you as a boss or and so it's your network changes and your supporters change and the people that are not going to be as happy with you change or grow. So it's really essential to have a network of people that you can rely on. And going back to involvement in community, that's a great way to to develop yourself in terms of finding your voice, developing your self-esteem. I always say that joining the AIA was great or the USGBC is where I started because it helped me find my voice. It helped me make mistakes in front of other people, but in a, a safer environment. And then develop a network that when I was at work, I could pick up the phone and call people and say, I have to do this project or I have this issue. How did you resolve it? Or do you have someone that I can call, right? So it is all part of, of developing that net of, of safe acquaintances, safe relations that if you're inside an organization when there's toxic people or a toxic culture, you can use others to also help mitigate some of that. I've had a lot of times, especially at the city where I had meetings at nine o'clock in the evening with the city manager. I said, okay, this is it for me. <laughs> and there were always, you know, I had a calls from a lot of people that were talking to me about giving me the other side of the story, right? So he said, you have a lot of people that support you. And I'm like, thank God, you know, because you have to step outside of your comfort zone to make decisions and to grow professionally and to overcome the toxic culture. So, but if you leave, then you're not that change agent, right? I mean, it's, if you leave, you're going to trade off some things and I don't think there's ever a perfect environment. To start with, you try to find a good fit, right, of where you're going to go. But it's not always possible, especially if you're going to a city. We always used to say we need to go start our own city, you know. <laughs> but it's finding those tools that help you grow professionally and also around you better. And the people, the people that you can work through and that will be there to, to continue to help you develop and, and navigate the system. We've been hearing, I think, a lot on this season of the podcast about growing your network, even if it's not in your workplace to find that support like yeah. you've mentioned. So while our listeners are out there building that network, we're going to use you as um, a resource right now. So negotiating a salary, what advice would you or raise or promotion what advice would you give? What steps should our listeners be taking when addressing this 
with their supervisors? I think the first step first is just being very self-aware, right? I think you need to be self-critical, self-aware, because you need to be, you need to know your worth, but you need to also realize what others think of you, right? I mean, it's uh, important for you to go. And I always, you know, tell this to people, you know, I had to go. I realized, I said, okay, I have five kids. I want to double or triple my salary. And, and so how do, how do you go about doing that? Right. And I've always been the type of person that I am like, I get to know everything about the business, right? I know the budget of my projects. I know, you know, how I want them staff. I know who, you know, how I'm going to the schedule that I'm going to do. And I, every time I met with a supervisor or with a boss or with, you know, I had to present things to counsel, you have to have all the questions answered. You've got to cover every base. And so by the time that you know that you're ready for a promotion, you've got to also know that people see you as ready for that as well, right? Because then when you go for that conversation, it's like they need you. They are ready for you to take over because they see you as a go-to person for something. They see you as a resource. So, but also do your research about what others are making. You know, I, I was in the public sector, so I always looked online. The, the public sector is easy because all the public sector salaries are usually published online, right? I mean, it's open. You've got to look for it, but you, I became really good at looking for information. So, <laughs> I think that you've got to have the confidence to ask for what you think is right. And then you've got to be willing to walk away. Right. And I think that that was also something that I always live by. It's like I wasn't afraid to be let go because I spoke up or because I, you know, and I think that that builds also respect on the part of, of the organization they see you that you're prepared. They see that you bring something to the table and that you're not afraid to, to just stand by your decision. So it's a delicate balance, obviously, because the more you develop, the more you, you have more responsibilities every year of your life, right? You, you grow in responsibility personally, financially, everything. So you've got to be very self-aware and and be, but, but be willing to take that risk. So I would say that it's important for, for our listeners to strengthen their confidence, to strengthen their self-esteem, to not be put down easily, to be relentless, to be determined. It's not an easy profession. It's very demanding. And so is, you know, having a personal life, right? And, and it's a balance. I always used to say, okay, everything is controlled chaos. I have my personal life is stable now and then work, it's all up in arms, right? And then you get work under control and it's like, oh, what's happening? My personal life is all, you know, upset. So, so keeping, just be reflective and don't take anything too seriously, but do prioritize and do you know, pay attention to where you want to go because you're the one driving your career. And it's interesting. I, I was at a AIA conference this last week and there was a, a session and they were saying, you know, you, 
you can have a life by choice or by default. And I'm like, it's not that clear cut. I think it's both, right? I think you do your part to make it by choice, but there's going to be a lot of things that are going to be by default because we're people. You can't control people like machines. So you just have to prepare yourself to be flexible and to, you know, just look at it. Every year I used to say from working at the city, we used to have a budget, you know, start budgeting every year. It's like budgeting from, from zero on. And I'm like, okay. I'm going to do that in my personal life. So just start from zero every year and kind of look at where you want to go, where you are, and try to make decisions that are good for you and your family or your job, you know, kind of make it a point to reflect on that and reach out to your mentors, get mentors, reach out to your network and, and you, you'll find out that obviously everybody's going through the same. So it's incredibly helpful to keep that network and grow that network and have people that you can turn to all the time to exchange thoughts and ideas about where you are and where you want to go next, the next phase, you know, in your career. Yeah, I thought that was perfect. The best advice. With that being said, do you have any advice specifically for women entering the AEC industry? I think, you know, we talked a little bit about this. I think that First, join industry associations. I think that that was extremely helpful to me, you know, and I, I have to say, don't be afraid to take time off if you have children and you need to stay at home for a while. I did some freelancing, but I stay at home for five years. I was itching to get back because I thought I'm going to forget everything. And it's, it's not difficult. There's opportunity and I got reintegrated. I took time off like I said, to stay home, but also from professional associations, right? I didn't really become as engaged with the AIA until the last 15 years, you know, because those first 25 years between having kids and, you know, the PTA and the Girl Scout and the Cub Scouts. And I'm like, you know, don't be, don't be ashamed that, you know, I had a a Girl Scout troop for six years and a Cub Scout then for four and then the last 15 years have been all about professional organization, but you can reintegrate yourself and you can devote time to professional world. And it'll make you even realize what to focus on better, right? Because you're going to find your passion within your career. But I think joining professional associations is essential. You're going to keep those relations forever as you grow professionally I think that again, you know, you'll, it'll help the, the organizations help you find your voice for advocating for yourself and for the, and for your profession. I think it's important to support other women. I think that we ourselves don't know exactly how to change the business world. I think that we are the first ones that have to say it's okay every now and then if you have to have a toddler in a board meeting, you know? Men have kids too. They just, I think we still take more of the burden of, of raising the kids and, and the babysitting. And it's not babysitting, it's child rearing, right? I tell my staff here, just, you know, if you have to bring the kids, bring them, right? They are going to grow up to be the professionals that we need and they are part of everybody's life. So I think the first thing we need to do is to demystify having children and being pregnant And like I said, just because you're pregnant and doing maternity leave doesn't mean that you cannot think and you cannot still be part, even if remote for a few months, 
just, you know, re-engage. And then, um, like I said, I mean, joining together is how we can change things. So I think that we're still not as uh, together as we should as women. And I think that women sometimes are women's worst supporters, and we need to change that. And so I'm happy to, to be a resource to any of our listeners that that would like to, to reach out. I am here at AIA Dallas, so we want to see you here too. So yeah, we need to stay connected. Awesome. Well, thank you. So with that, we always like to leave off asking each guest a resource, whether it's a book, movie, TED Talk, another podcast, something that helped you when you were working on finding your way. Well, I'll tell you what, I was thinking about this and I remember a book that I really liked and it was called Honoring the Self. I think it's by Nathaniel Brandon and it's interesting because he's honoring the self, but he touches on that strengthening of the self-esteem and the confidence, all aspects of your life, right? It's not just about work, but I think that we often need validation that we can be women, that we can be mothers, that we can, you know, that we need to see ourselves in all the different, be vulnerable and, and it's okay. It's okay to be a leader and to be at work, but it's okay to have all these other things and how do you deal with all of that? And then the other thing, it just, it's funny, but it's an older movie, but I always loved it. It's called Working Girl with Melanie Griffith. You guys need to see it. It's one of the 80s with the, all the big hair. <laughs> it's a fantastic movie because it, and you've, yeah, it's a, it's a movie where, where she breaks the mold, right? But it's by just her different way of thinking and her being genuine and being a woman. And I don't think we need to get hardened or jaded or bitter. I think we just need to change the way the world perceives women in the, in the workplace. And the fact that we're different makes a difference and enriches the workplace and i'll leave you with that maybe you all can email me later and say boy that was interesting so <laughs> <laughs> all right well thank you so much for uh, coming on the show this has been wonderful thank you to our listeners we hope to see you at the next elevate her empower space podcast thank you thank you all Well, thanks again for listening to this episode of the limited series in Power Space by Elevate Her. Follow us to listen to the next podcast and stay tuned for our next great episode coming soon, available on every major podcasting platform. Thanks again for listening. Mm-hmm.